0: Welcome to the Third Growth Option Podcast, where we talk with business leaders and innovators hungry to drive growth that can be faster than internal organic growth and less risky than acquisition. Your moderator is Bernal Dunkerspuler, Chief Sherpa and CEO at Realign, who has led private equity-owned distributors through turnarounds and growth. With battle-proven leaders from all frontiers, we want to provoke thinking about business growth beyond conventional or wisdom, and binary choices.
1: Hey, I'm Benno, uh, your host, talking today with Nick Desario. Nick, welcome to Third Growth Option Podcast.
0: Thanks, Benno. It's great to be here.
1: I am so excited about this this episode because you are a great designer, uh, and we're going to talk about the creative process. Uh, we're working on a project together for the last uh, several months now. I feel pretty lucky to be working with you because, you know, you 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 got some street cred in the world of design and furniture. You have uh, work that's been featured in Architectural Digest and El Decor, and you designed for McGuire Furniture and R H uh, Restoration Hardware, R House, William Sonoma, and earned your bachelor's, B A in architecture, and then a master and masters in product design from uh, from Domus Academy in Milan, Italy.
0: Is that right? That is correct. You are the real deal, my friend. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, a life curated of cool experiences.
1: <laughs> a
0: life curated. <laughs>
1: yeah. Wow. You did You did not get out of college thinking,
0: I'm going to curate my life. There are things that manifest out of, um, there's a lot of fear in saying yes to things, right? But I kind of try to say yes to things. You're in a collection of things you can write on a bio page. <laughs>
1: I really kind of want to talk to you about this, you know, this creative process, design process, and, you know, which is filled with constant starts and, and restarts and refresh and retake. And you used the expression the other day of shedding your skin to start again, which I love. What do you love and what do you hate about the creative process?
0: I think it's both a love and a hate is the collaborative necessity, Right. You can't design in a vacuum, as much as I'll probably discuss trying to, and you end up with a creative process that could never end. When you have a lot of cooks in the kitchen and points of view and perspectives on something that you've 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 kind of concepted from from a nucleus from a nothing, and so it's it's you know it it can be frustrating, and you got to have you know a disassociative sort of presence when creating collectively and. And then, and then, you know, sometimes it's that perspective that you just didn't consider that wins the day, right? That comes from from left field from one of your co collaborators. What do you mean by disassociative presence? Um, you want to take ego away from things. I don't. I don't mean to get Zen Buddhist or religious, but I think that if you can remove an emotional attachment to what you create, you, there's less anxiety about failure or rejection and then you're also open to criticism and feedback in a way that spawns better a better result it's hard to do (laughs) for me i maybe it's easier for others but um, it's definitely how i try to approach
1: so you're talking about the idea of in an ideal collaborative environment everybody walks into the room with an opinion right with a vision of how it ought to be done. And most everybody walks out of the room with a different opinion.
0: Yeah. Yes. I, I, I am saying that. And I'm also sort of saying that there is emotional attachment to e- each person's opinion. And so you know, navigating that in a collaborative process is, is tricky and, and fun and fruitful and scary
1: I look at your designs and I look at your, you know, creative concept boards and then, you know, items that you have, you have designed. And I, I can, I can just feel and imagine the hours and hours and hours of obsessing and thinking about things from 17 different angles until you came up with that particular way to do it. And to your point, maybe a sp- Big, you know, a big percentage of it is was you obsessing over it, and then and, and other people obsessed and came to different results, and that you sort of include that in a sort of an alchemy kind of way, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. I think more directly when you're when you're designing for a client, there's an infusion of their their foundational sense of self, right? Whether that's a brand, so what are of the tenants of the brand, or if it's an individual client a a person who wants a really beautiful sofa for their home and it's going to be one piece you really want to kind of get in their mind and and design something that isn't uniquely your you know my perspective on aesthetic but in collaboration with what they want what they desire what makes them feel good and if it's something really tailored and fastidious or is it something more casual they can throw their saint bernard on and cozy in for the night you know it's you know it's so so all these things that inform uh where you go with a pencil on a piece of paper and then giving them you know a piece of myself how does everything that they want run through the filter of nick desario's sort of mind and 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 what i what i think is right (laughs) so to speak yeah it's fun you're
1: a lot younger than me. I get to say you've been doing it for a couple decades, right? <laughs> yeah, been I've been doing it for a couple, de- de- couple decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there are certain routines. I'm sure that you know. I mean, there are certain parts of the process that sort of repeat themselves, right, um, over and over again. But the trick is, right, to not get stale and to you know sort of mix it up, and that's where the you know start and restart and shedding your skin kind of comes in. How do you balance, you know, sort of an approach that you've honed in on over some decades with not getting stale?
0: That's a great question. And I think that as much as I'd like to say as I shut the windows and close the doors and turn off the lights on outside influences, you can't help... But be influenced by your contemporaries, the people that you idealized, idealized that brought me into design, and subconsciously you're always being, you're always designing with other people's fingerprints. Sort of setting that process, or what's a better way of saying
1: staying that? Op- staying open, yeah, Remaining staying
0: open. open, right? Remaining open and and not being bogged down by what's happened prior, right? Sometimes I can sit down and I'm I'm drawing a line and I keep. Drawing this line, and it's oh, it's, mid, it's such a mid-century modern line, and I'm trying to shake that mid-century vibe off my pencil, and and sometimes you just can't, and you got to stop, relax, have a cup of coffee, uh, turn on some music, and a different wavelength starts to to vibe through your arm, and it's kind of an esoteric answer, but looking away without being iterative is almost impossible.
1: You're a designer, you're a furniture designer, and as such, you're not doing art for the sake of art, but you're doing design to, to solve a problem, to solve a client's problem. And and if the client happens to be you know, a business, a, a wholesale business, a retail business, any successful business has left-brain and right-brain folks, right? And the analytical left-brain folks think completely differently than the creative right-brain folks. Sort of like, you know, men are from Mars and women from Venus kind of thing I found. But how much do you interact with, you know, the analytical left-brain folks and how?
0: Quite a a (laughs) lot, actually. And it's something that I think is extremely necessary to be able to facilitate a creative result, you know, to have that data, especially with a brand or a retailer, their unique knowledge of what's been selling. I have opinions about what I think should happen next through lots of visual data points of what I'm seeing in the world. But the data But they that,
1: have excel yeah, sheets. <laughs>
0: they have excel sheets and they they have proof that this sold x units in 6 months and and this is what we were able to sell it for for the most amount of money. And you know, those things are very useful. So that we can comp against that, right? Like we can take that math and then set, you know, a visual standard for a category or or going down a direction for a collection of furniture that is incremental and not cannibalistic.
1: At times, you have to look at the Excel sheet, you know, look at the history, what happened in the last six months, the last two years or whatever, and then you have to apply the design thinking, sort of forward thinking, you know, where's the consumer today and where do we think the consumer is going to be tomorrow, which cannot be found on an Excel sheet. I mean, you can do some surveys, but, you know, you know the old um, Henry Ford, if I'd asked them what kind of car they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? I mean, that's what the Excel sheet will tell you, get a faster horse.
0: <laughs> yeah, right? Like, how do we really break the mold? Yeah, and, and a lot of times there's there's a blind leap of faith. And that can be said as shedding the skin, right? Like there's this sort of new layer that's very sensitive to the touch and nobody knows what's how, you know like what's what's going to happen really. And when you talk about designing something that is a little less familiar, right? That kind of pushes the envelope. It, you know, when you see it, you feel a little bit uncomfortable. But you don't want to be too uncomfortable because there ha- it still has to be an approachable, saleable object when we're talking about retail. But then there's the other flip of that. The other side of that coin is you have people with unlimited budget who want that sense of uh, functional art where it's, it's really art heavy and it's really pushing a, you know, an artistic agenda that you can set a drink on or you know, sit down on. And, and maybe it's not the most comfortable thing in the world, but it really serves as, a different a, a, purpose. Right, a different like, purpose. May, right, yeah.
1: May, maybe being more more of a conversation piece instead of a piece yeah, to yeah. Cuddle
0: up with your Saint Bernard. Right, it's that anchor in in somebody's you know home, which they treat as a gallery. Do you have a Saint Bernard? I do not have a Saint Bernard. Okay, I, yeah. I was just curious. no. I have a, I have a <laughs> Shih Tzu, and um, he needs a bath. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's
1: Friday afternoon. I'm sure there'll be time uh, later today or tomorrow.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: So it's interesting what you just said about comfortable versus uncomfortable in terms of the reaction that the end user has, right? The consumer or the buyer or uh, with a product, a piece of furniture in this case. Uh, You know, when I was at Pottery Barn, Gary Friedman would always talk about, you know, when he was at the Gap, that you know the designers would try to make a polo shirt that's a
0: little bit different
1: but it's still a polo shirt you don't want it to be so like avant-garde that dude this is not a polo shirt
0: exactly <laughs> right? i mean and then you're alienating you know your your consumer base right so there's there's something to be protected there yeah for sure so
1: you so you probably spend quite a bit of time going into you know, different environments, be that retail stores or museums or hotels or, right? And, and and just sort of immersing yourself in how different types of people live to design furniture for different sort of demographics.
0: Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, just through the proxy of being in the industry, you end up traveling around the world to different locations, factories, um, you know, Thailand, Indonesia, uh, India, Europe, and all throughout the United States, depending on you know, the the level of product that you're having, you're having made, or, or if you're, you're utilizing a, maybe a skill set or a material that just doesn't exist in the United States. So it has to be sourced from someplace different, which you and I might call exotic, but
1: you and I just called it
0: Wednesday afternoon. Yeah, Come on. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's Wednesday afternoon. I'm in Thailand. No, I wish and what i mean by being in those environments is you're you're traveling through their showrooms or you're in these factories and you're constantly being in, in, inspired and energized by the hands that make i get the luxury of drawing these neat shapes and forms and shading and using light and dark to peel you know an object off the page visually and then and then we we get to go to these factories where true craftsmen are making these pieces come alive and sometimes they invite you into your, their home and you realize they have this menagerie of prototypes and things that they've made. And it's so inspiring. You can't not be influenced by it. There's a cultural dynamic to the pieces too. You know, there's the heavily Asian influence depending on where you are within Asian Asia, uh, whether it's India or China or, or otherwise, right? There's design, there's like design, shapes and forms and proportion systems that are different than what you'd find in, in more of, and I hate to use the word bland because I don't think it's bland, but in the United States, things are very reduced, reductive and, and clean. Easy to manufacture. Easier to make uh, easier on the eyes to consume, to take in. And we're less ornate. We're less reliant on ornamentation and the details are in the way two materials might come together, or uh, a joint, or uh, the way the chair leg touches the ground just so. Where they're, you know, heavily they have like chinoiserie painting on the side of an armoire, or you know, the lacquer that they use is so deep and complex and rich. It takes six months to apply. It's a whole other language when you're when you're traveling abroad and looking at fine furniture.
1: You know, my opening question was around the creative process. What You know, what do you love and hate about it? What is it? And throughout the conversation, we're talking about listening to new information. I mean, I, I talked about left-brain and right-brain people inside the client's business, right? Sort of the operations and finance people over here and the creative and product and marketing people over there. And you're saying as a creative person, I've got to listen to how the other half thinks. And also you're looking at materials and influences in other cultures that inform you of how, you know, this is how you make a chair in this material that we don't have in the United States. Or here's how you make it uh, an armor in that finish that we would never, you know, have the skills or artisans to do it in this country. So it, it feels like part of your creative process is being an alchemist and borrowing and stealing from, from everybody, right. In a good way.
0: Yeah. And I think that, I think that's the true path, right. Is selectively pairing and blending different genres, periods of history, craft in, in just that way, right. This alchemy, this melting pot of, of historical things. There's, it's, it's very hard to be unique in, in the art world. I would say. And really, the the intrinsic value is derived in being able to look back and see what was there and how we can expound or, or, or re-leverage something that might have been lost to time. And so to that point, yes.
1: Give me an example of the worst design project ever and what made it the worst just nightmare of a project?
0: Oh, my goodness. Oh, you're springing it on me. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's just so many. No, um, <laughs> just kidding. You know, I, I would have to say, gosh, for me, it was just a matter of personal preference. But I think the even the designs that are hard to get done and the ones that require the most salesmanship to get buy-in. And trust and belief, even if it fails, have been rewarding and exceptionally, you know, exceptional moments of teaching, right? And so, you know, to say the worst, it's just going to have to be. My answer is, I hate designing children's furniture. Okay. <laughs>
1: just, why, why do you hate designing children's it's furniture? It's just too small. You know, yeah, it's
0: unsophisticated. <laughs> They're going to grow out of these little uh, armchair things, and I don't think. Children should have their own furniture. I don't know. It's a, <laughs> it's a bias.
1: Do your children have not don't have kids' furniture, I think. No,
0: it. no, yeah. I mean, we have stuff that can tra- I mean, there, there's a bunk bed. There's certain staples.
1: That that that's as far as you'll go. <laughs> yeah. You can have a like, bunk bed
0: kit. But they can have said. a nice, they don't have to have like a my little pony chest of drawers, right? Like that's <laughs> I'll take money and design that for you, but I'd prefer not to.
1: This just reminds me uh when our so we have two daughters. Uh, there's a four-and-a-half-year age difference between them. So, you know, when the firstborn was growing up, she says, oh, I want to have a sibling. And and then, you know, when she was three-and-a-half or four years old, oh, no, you're going to have a sibling. And, you know, she went through all the, the range of emotions that, you know, from excitement to, you know, as it got close to her sister being born, you know, a little bit like, wait a minute, what's going to happen to me now? Am I not going to be? So my wife did the most brilliant thing. She went to Pottery Barn Kids bought a white girl's desk and desk chair. And the day we brought our second daughter home from the hospital, the Pottery born Kids desk and chair was in our older daughter's room with a bow around it. And she was so excited. And my wife said, your sister gave that to you. So it kind of cemented the relationship and, you know, it it was a great foundation to kick kick off launch to the new relationship between two
0: two siblings. Well, that's nice. That's, uh, okay, I take it all back. I take it all back.
1: <laughs> You're like, what does that have to do with the creative process? Uh, I don't no, no, know. It's just no. something that popped into my head.
0: I, I, I think everyone, you know, of course, uh, I think the consumer has a right to furnish their children's room <laughs> with children's scale and ch- children.
1: And they have the furnishes. right to hire a, du- an, I, a designer yeah. other than
0: Nick to do yeah, it. Yeah, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I, you know, it's yeah.
1: All uh, right, give me, give me, give me your most favorite design project ever.
0: Now, that also is very difficult because I, I, I really do have a lot of favorites. I would say my favorite, there's two, and I'm going to give you two. One is with uh, the Maguire Furniture brand. Where we did a desk chair. It's a swivel desk chair. It's kind of the shape of an egg, and it's got these sort of ring arms. And, um, and it's a blend of rattan frame, brass legs, and it has rawhide wrapping with a, with, with a really beautiful hand-woven herringbone uh, caning.
1: Seems like a simple Ikea product.
0: I'm kidding. It's very simple, very simple. (laughs) Um, But, you know, and it wasn't the fact that I got to see this come to life, but it was the collaborative process of being in the factory in Medan, Indonesia, in Sumatra, in like, oh, in 300% humidity in a factory that barely has like one, has like two power outlets because everything's done by hand and it's silent. And we're communicating with a, you know, through hand gestures and 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 pointing to things and and eye contact.
1: Your Bahasa Indonesian. Yeah, my Bahasa is so no.
0: Yeah, the, my Bahasa consists of basically just feed me uh, nasi goreng like full time for every every meal. The collaborative process of going through the iterations of making the shape right, getting the form correct, the seat height, getting the ring of the arm, just so how far to wrap the the, the rawhide down the arm, and working with those makers those those craftspeople are phenomenal sit and take photographs of that and video of that and have the luxury to be a part of that was just i think you can say that for pretty much all the the pieces we did with that brand but that that piece in particular always stood out in my mind
1: so you know what when 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 you and i do um the nick desario version of parts unknown of anthony (laughs) bourdain yes uh let let's go to that very place in indonesia
0: Good. We'll look up Beringan. He's yeah. He was he was my guy there. He was killing it. The second one, and I'll keep it short, was um, with Nicole Hollis, and we did a sofa for a client that was really hard to make, and we worked with some local uh, upholsterers in San Francisco that just nailed it. They got it right, like through a series of conversation opportunities and looking at the drawings. I don't know. I wish I could just show you the sofa. I mean, it's a—it's kind of a thin story to tell over the podcast, but you know, it's—it's it's visual. You know, it's—it's it's visually heavy on the communication there. So, yeah.
1: Nick, I really in, in, enjoyed you know sort of you pulling back the curtain a little bit around the creative process because I, I look, I I work with a lot of business owners and 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 clients that have you know, a certain vision of what a designer is. And, you know, the word collaboration is not usually in the first five words, right, that people think about. But what you have described here is very much sort of a, a give and take and different cooks in the kitchen and, and you know, and, and, and having to sort of, you know, the importance of remaining open to new information and to new input, I think, is part of what makes you a, a, a great designer.
0: Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. I you know, we could we could go for another another hour easily. I, <laughs>
1: but nobody would listen to it after <laughs> no, that. It's more than
0: tank. <laughs> um, All
1: right, man. Hey, this was great. Uh if uh, if anybody, you know, uh listening to, you know, we've got uh folks in fifty-five countries now listening to the Third Growth Option Podcast. So there may be somebody. Uh that says, you know what, this guy, Nick, I, wa- I want to learn a little bit more about his furniture design. How might somebody reach you?
0: Well, I don't carry a website. I, ca- I stay kind of low profile there. But I'd be happy to connect with anybody over email. My email address is ndesario at gmail.com. That's n-d-e-s-a-r-i-o at gmail.com. And, and uh, like Nick. And like Nick. That's right. And Desario like Desario.
1: <laughs> at, at gmail.com, you say. At right? gmail, yeah.
0: Yeah. Terrific. Thank you. Benno, it was my pleasure. It's uh, wonderful to connect. Thank you.
1: Hey, uh, uh, if folks want to explore other growth topics, you can find me on our website, realignforresults.com, or just email Benno at realignforresults.com. That's B E N N O. Thanks for listening and keep
0: growing. You can listen to more episodes on Apple, Spotify or Google. We would love for you to subscribe, rate and review it. Share it with your friends or colleagues if you enjoyed the content. Always growing.